in a way, I don't know that I even need to be up here. What more can I add to the sermon that we've already had through song this morning? The words of those songs, uh, so much truth, so much power. Today we're in Judges 4 and 5. Uh, now last week, I think it was about Tuesday, Lorena had asked me, about how long do you think you're going to go? And at that point, I had written nothing down. And I said, 25 minutes, 30 minutes, I don't know. So I got done last week and I asked my wife, how long was that? She said, I don't know. Didn't seem long, but I watched the video back and it was 45 minutes I was up here. So I promise this week I will be more expedient. We remember when Wes spoke and the message last week and we carry with us all of that history and that purpose that God had and remembering last week the stories of Othniel and Ehud and Shamgar. This week we start in, in, in chapter 4. Uh, we remember Wes's points, every generation must choose. God calls unlikely leaders and God can use anyone, even his enemies. God can use anything, any circumstance. Chapter 3, we focused on mostly the area of uh, Judah, Benjamin, Ephraim, the area around Jericho. Today's story is up in the, the northern part of the country. And we remember that after the victory that Ehud had won against the Moabites and their allies, we had 80 years of peace and rest. Judges chapter 4. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the, the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagoyim. So today, the threat is a king of the Canaanites, the Canaanite people. Before we had threats coming from outside. This is the threat from those living amongst them. Uh, a direct result of their failure to obey the command of the Lord to completely drive out the inhabitants, the Canaanites. Back in Joshua chapter 11, there's a story of another king of Hazor named Jabin. So Jabin must be a popular name among these guys, right? And, and Joshua, it says, uh, I'm just going to flip there. It's Joshua 11. 
and it's chapter 10, and it says, he turned back at that time and captured Hazor and struck its king with a sword. And he completely wiped him out. And they killed the king, Jabin. And down at the end it said, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. Right? Joshua did what he was supposed to do. He was obedient. He listened. After they won, after they split everything up, this is your land, this is your land over here, to this tribe, they split everything up. They still had a job to do. They, they hadn't gotten rid of all of them. And so it was up to the, the individual tribes, it was their job, clean out the rest. And remember, that's when Wes said, they got about 90% done and that was good enough. And so we have, whether it's a rebuilt city of Hazor that had been completely destroyed, we don't know, but we have a reemergence. They failed to wipe them out, they left them there to fester, and this is some, at least 80, possibly more years afterward, and they're a renewed threat. And so following uh, along in uh, verse 2, the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagoyim. Kind of like, he's almost, you know, we think of him as the general of his army, but it, it's almost like this guy's another king in allegiance, right? He, was the, he lived in another city. He was the ruler of that city. He was the, the warrior He's the one that beat everybody else and had risen to the top. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Remember the first time I said it was eight years. The next time it was 18 years. This time it said it was 20 years, and this time... He oppressed the people cruelly. This was a Canaanite. When they had conquered the land, when they defeated a city and killed all of the inhabitants of the city, they were killing Canaanites. So now this guy has risen to power and is oppressing the Israelites. What must that revenge have been like? It says he oppressed them cruelly. Surely it was cruel. And it says that he had 900 chariots of iron. We've heard that phrase before, chariots of iron. We heard it back in the beginning of the book when Judah didn't completely drive out the people. They fought the people in the hills and were able to, to win that victory. But it said they could not drive out, or they did not drive out, the people of the plain because they had chariots of iron. 
The Israelites didn't have this weaponry that the Canaanites had. Uh, what did a chariot allow them to do? It, it was speed in battle. It was, uh, you know, uh, some say they affixed blades to the side and they would run through the foot soldiers and cut them down. Men could fire arrows from a stable platform as they rode around the battlefield, as they flanked their enemies. Foot soldiers stood no chance against chariots. These were machines of war, and the guys that rode on them could wear armor. Not, not like medieval knight armor, right? This is different. This is leather garments, hard bits. But that was the best they had at the time. They, threw, they had spears that they could throw or stab from a distance. These were unbeatable enemies. We read on. And it says, now Deborah, in verse 4, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. Now this must be a special lady. He calls her a prophetess, and there's only a handful in the entire Bible of women ascribed the title of prophetess, of someone who relays God's message to the people, who speaks for God to the people. Deborah is the only female judge that we have in this entire book. And it says that she judged the people. She decided disputes. She corrected where they went wrong. Abuses that occurred. You know, a civil ruler. She was doing everything that the rest of the judges did except providing the military leadership. And chapter, or, uh, verse 6 says, She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kedesh Neftali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 people uh, from Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give them into your hand. Now, Barak is a military man, a military commander. So to give you some idea of the respect that Deborah commands, that the people have placed in her, she summons Barak to her. And when she says, has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? 
more like, surely God has commanded you to go out and face this enemy. Um, not, a, not in a scolding way, why aren't you doing this? In a, God, God will do this for you. Now I want you to appreciate what she is asking of Barak. She's saying, the Lord is calling you to gather an army and march against, go out and fight an unbeatable enemy. So if, if Barak does this, and maybe God's not in this, maybe God's not with them on that day, that means he's dead, that means 10,000 men are dead, what does that mean for their families? I mean, I think we read this next part in Barak's answer. We sometimes gloss over what this actually means to face this enemy. Okay, let's read his response. Barak said to her in chapter 8, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. We've got, there's two sides. I mean, on one hand, it shows, it shows his faith. I will do this if you'll go with me. Okay, and, and, and later on, even in the book of Hebrews, it ascribes to that praise for his faithfulness. It's Hebrews 11, 32, and it says, and what more shall I say? And, and this is after a list of going through examples of faith, of the faith of Abel and Abraham and Moses. And it gets down to the end, and he says, and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms and forced justice, obtained promises and stopped the mouths of lions. They quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, and they were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign enemies to flight. Barak was praised for his faithfulness. But we see, if you will not go with me, I will not go. It also displays the weakness of his faith. In Barak's experience, God hadn't provided the victory yet. 
Why would it be now? So in answer to that, Deborah says, I will go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. You, the military commander, will not receive the glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Whoa. Now, women aren't, they're not fighting. Women don't do war. Right? Even, even the, the foot soldiers don't get the glory in combat. When they capture a king, your average Joes, they don't kill the king. A king kills a king. Right? He gets captured, the victorious king comes in, and a king kills a king. And Deborah is saying, the Lord will give this victory to a woman. Is it going to be Deborah? I mean, at this point, probably that's what she's, that's probably what he's thinking. Chapter 10. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kedesh, and 10,000 men went at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. He's gathering his army. Okay? Stepping out in faithfulness, even though at this point there is no way that he can win. There's a little interjection here in chapter 11. Now it says, Now Heber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zananim, which is near Kedesh. Okay, so this is kind of to get you ready for what's coming. But all we need to know is these were relatives of Moses and this one guy left the rest of them who are down in the south, and he went up here, and he lives in the area. Okay, and, and he's not at war. This guy, his little nomadic family, is not at war with the Canaanites. He's kind of a neutral third party. All right. Verse 12, when Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him, from Harosheth Hagoyim up to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, up, for this is the day which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. We've got this set up for a battle that they're going to lose. Now the setting for the battle is in the northern part of the country, in the valley of Jezreel, 
And it's about six miles long and hills on both sides. I wouldn't call them mountains, what we think of as mountains, but significant terrain. On one side, up on the hill is Nazareth. This is up by the Sea of Galilee. And at the, at the end of this valley, standing alone, like a monolith, is Mount Tabor, or if you're speaking American, Mount Tabor. And this, on this hill, big rounded monolith, they gather their men, and it allows them to see the entire length of this valley. It's a strategic location. And through the middle of this valley, opposite Mount Tabor runs the river Kishon. And when Sisera was told, Barak, the military commander, has gathered 10,000 men, possibly, most assuredly more than that, because the 10,000 was just from those two tribes, Naphtali and Zebulun, but there's, as we, in the song that comes after, we see more tribes helped out. They sent more men. As he's gathered these men, Sisera is informed, and so he gathers his men. He gathers his 900 chariots and all of his soldiers, and they go to meet him, to destroy, to crush this uprising. And they go right down, easiest way to get there, follow the river. It'll take you right there. The enemy force arrives, they're arrayed, ready for battle, and Deborah says, get up, the Lord has given them into your hands. Now realistically, their only chance would be to hold this hill. It's got trees, it's got terrain and rocks, it would be hard for chariots to rout them from this hill. But instead of that, they march off the hill onto the plain to fight the chariots, to fight an overwhelming force. And all it tells us in chapter 4 is that Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. They won. What? How did they win? Chapter 5 is the song of victory sung by Deborah and Barak after this amazing victory, and it sheds some more light on exactly what happened. We're not going to read through the whole thing, 
But I draw your attention, chapter 5, verse 4. This is them singing. Kind of a response, call and response. Deborah would sing one line. Barak would sing another line. And it goes, Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. Another translation says, the mountains melted. There was a downpour, an overused phrase, of biblical proportion. And these chariots and this army arranged in the valley of this river were overcome with the flood. This valley is fertile farm ground, even today. I read uh, one guy's description of it, and this was an Englishman who traveled the world. He said, you couldn't picture a more fertile and productive place as this valley just overflowing with wheat. Okay, the, the ground here is so good. Deep, rich soil. But when it gets wet, it's not hard ground. And those chariots were stuck. And those horses couldn't pull them out. And these guys with this armor, these heavy garments, they couldn't fight. Chapter 5, verse 19, the kings came, they fought, then fought the kings of Canaan at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They got no spoils of silver. From heaven the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away, the ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon. Not only were they stuck, the water drowned them, washed them away. As they were routed, they tried to flee. And they were destroyed. Now, This was a victory against the Canaanites. Who was it that the Canaanites worshipped? Who was their god? There were several, but primarily it was worship of Baal. And remember, we're referencing again our story of Elijah. And, and think back, what did Elijah how did God work through Elijah to express his power over Baal? Elijah said, there will be no rain. Because Baal was the god of storms. He was the god of fertility. The god of rain. 
And so in a similar fashion, God revels in showing, no, you're not the God of rain. I am the God of rain. I am the God of everything. And this victory belongs to me. Because in this story, the hero is not a man. The hero is not a woman. The hero is God. And so in answer to that promise that that he had given Deborah, that message, the end of the story, Sisera, his army is destroyed. He runs away. And he flees into this area where these relatives of Moses' father-in-law lived. And he flees, and a lady comes out of her tent, and she says, come here. Come in here. I will provide you rest. And her name is Yael. And so he goes in, and, and men don't go in women's tents. They, women have their separate tents, okay? When Abraham and Sarah, uh, when we read about them, Abraham had his tent, Sarah had her tent. So she, he turns aside into her tent, and he says, you got to save me. Hide me. And so she brings him in. He says, I'm thirsty. She gives him some milk. She lays him down, covers him over with a blanket. And he says, if anybody comes looking for me, tell him I'm not here. And remember, they're not at, they're not at war with these nomadic people, the Kenites. And he thinks he's safe. And then it says, when he's asleep, Yael takes a tent peg, a wooden stake, and sneaks over to him quietly, and, he put, and she puts it on his head, and with a mallet, drives it down into the earth. And Yael kills Sisera, the commander of Canaan's armies. God answers that promise. It's not the it's not the likely person, but it's the person that God promised. A woman won that victory. So God is the hero. God provides the victory. And that's what he wants you and I, to understand. If we win a victory in our lives, whether it's over sin, whether it's over an obstacle in our way, 
whether it's something that we've been praying about for years, when we have a victory, it's not because of something that we did. It's not, it's not because of us. It's God that provides the victory. We are not worthy. We don't merit a victory. As I've stood up here the last couple of weeks and been able to speak, you know, afterwards people will pat me on the back and say, such a good job, and that makes me feel awkward. Because it's not my ability that is having an effect. The Holy Spirit is touching hearts. If you, if you feel conviction from a message, it's not the guy up here. That's the Holy Spirit. And we are so blessed in this church to have individuals capable of speaking, of leaders capable of leading. I don't know how many other churches you go around to, but it's not that way in a lot of places. Praise God for that. He has blessed us with that. God provides the victory. But I want to go back to those chariots of iron. Let's talk about chariots of iron. The unwinnable. The impossible. We'll go back to Judges 1. And I referenced this in the beginning. And it said, they fought in the hills and they won. But they didn't fight on the plain. And they could not drive out those men. They had chariots of iron. Up to that point, they had complete success. They won every battle they fought. Because why? Because they fully trusted God. And in large part, to the leadership that gave them that direction, that gave them that correction. In this song of Deborah and Barak, in verse 2, take a look. That the leaders took the lead in Israel and the people offered themselves willingly. Bless the Lord. The reason for their failure wasn't because God couldn't do it. They lost faith. They saw that enemy and they said, that will be too hard. That will cost us too much. 
How many men will we lose if we fight those chariots? To take on that battle would be foolish. But in our story today, how many years later? How easy was the victory for God? How many men did they lose? Not very many. When we're trusting in ourselves to win, when we trust in our own strength for victory, our faith is imperfect like, like Barak. We have faith, but it's flawed. That's our weakness. For the Israelites, it was believing God to a point. I will trust in one of God's promises, but not another one. You remember when Wes said, the whole counsel of God. All of the promises of God. We don't pick and choose what we believe. We don't just fight the enemies on the hill, the stuff that's easy, the stuff that we know we can do. We have to fight the enemies on the plain, the ones that seem impossible to prevail over. There are people sitting right here today. There are people watching online today that one year ago, two years ago, you said to them, you would be here today. You would be saved today. They would say, impossible. God provides the victory. We just have to be willing to fight. Let's pray. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is Bethesda M b.org that's bethesda m as in mary b as in boy.org or check us out on facebook by searching for bethesda church of huron have a blessed day